Welcome to B&B Financially Free, the podcast for ambitious individuals chasing financial freedom through buying short-term rental investments. We're your hosts, Chantal and Peter, and we're the founders of Good Neighbor Realty. Our brokerage has helped hundreds of people turn their active income into passive income by buying unique properties in incredible locations that are earning a ton of money. On this show, we'll bring on a diverse range of guests from industry experts to everyday people who have achieved extraordinary results in their short-term rental investments, businesses, and personal lives. Whether you're seeking tactical advice or trying to unlock your richest life, BNB Financially Free is here to join you on the journey. All right, and welcome to another episode of BNB Financially Free. I am so excited to be chatting with Sierra today. Sierra, how are you doing? Good. Great to be here. Thanks for bringing me on. Yeah, thanks for coming. So this is a story that I just am really excited to dig into. So like what we were talking about before, like a ton of people have talked about the idea of, you know, buying a campground and offering like unique stays or you know, we were just chatting about building multiple cabins. Like that's the thing that everybody's looking to do. But as you know, it's extremely hard to accomplish. And so let's just start off by you telling us, you know, the asset that you purchased, like what it is, what it's called, where it's at, and just the story of acquiring this asset. Yeah, I would love to. So this is about Base Camp, <laughs> which is a campground here about 45 minutes outside of Denver in Black Hawk. Funny enough, most Metro people don't actually know where that is. I know, I didn't. Which is crazy. It's got a lot of casinos, so it gets a lot of rep for that. But it's also Golden Gate Canyon State Park is in there, which is one of the most beautiful places in the summer and fall in Colorado. So really, I think more people should know where Gilpin County and Black Hawk is. But a little bit about the asset itself. So it's 42 sites, 21 are RV, 13 are old little KOA camping cabins. So a little 150 square foot fun. You feel like you're camping, but you're on a like log cabin bed. So for my glampers out there who like don't want to be in the tent on the ground, but don't want to be in a hotel, it's that great in between. And then we also have a few tent sites and then camp store, which has a lot of fun stuff, um, really almost have as much as a convenience store and we actually have gas pumps on site too so go ahead i had a moving parts i have been to your gas site so i like i showed you i have the a-frame out in this area too i really love it i have been stranded multiple times without gas and i don't know like what happened but like sometimes i used to be able to get on you guys's wi-fi when i was at the station recently i haven't been but Thank you for keeping the gas station there because you have saved me multiple times. Um, And I love how many sites that you have. I don't think I realized that it was that big. So how big is the parcel itself? Yeah, it's a little over three acres. So actually in the scheme of like Colorado campgrounds, we're not that big. It's just always been small. It was built in like 1969. It used to be a KOA back in the day, but never really expanded. It was kind of like small family camping. Um, so it's actually not that big, but that's kind of standard. Um, as far as acreage goes, you'll see that eight to 10 site range when you're talking campgrounds and RV parks. So for 42 on a little over three, acre, three acres, it's pretty standard for the industry. Okay. And fill me in like your, your how old, how did you, how did you just decide one day I'm going to own a campground in rural Colorado? Are you operating this on your own? Like, give me some background there. 
Yeah, so such a fun story. Sometimes I say I'm 29 going on 59 because, like, really the only people who own campgrounds and RV parks is mom and pops. Yeah. So that's a term we use a lot, especially when we're talking about acquisitions and who you're dealing with when you want to buy a campground. It's mom and pops. Like, some days I laugh because I feel like I died one day and rose as my parents. And now, (laughs) like, I spend a lot of time. My parents travel in an RV. So literally, it's not just a joke. Like, I woke up one day and was like, oh, I'm going to own a campground. The story behind that is when I wanted to get into real estate, I went and got my real estate license, which is what most of us do. I didn't feel that my personality fit very well with residential. So I went into the commercial space. And then when I got the job at a commercial office here in downtown Denver, I walked in and they're like, okay, we're going to give you your asset class. It's kind of the like day of like, what am I going to get? I was thinking I was going to get retail. You know, I was going to go triple at least like actual commercial real estate agent. They're like, you're going to do campgrounds. (laughs) It's like (laughs) campground. I'm sorry. What? Like you mean like state parks and national parks? Those are privately. I'm confused. So that starts the whole beginning learning curve of like learning everything there is to learn about campgrounds and RV parks. And I didn't get into mobile home parks until later. I just started out in campgrounds and RV parks. So I did what we all do. We go on, we find the podcasts, we find the books, we find the people. So I ended up doing several mastermind courses with people specific in that industry. <clears throat> Pretty early on, I knew that I really wanted to be an owner And I think being an agent is awesome. You learn so much about underwriting, transactions, investors, money. You really learn all of the working parts. But then I think like you, you end up being an investor because you learn so much about it. You're like, I can do this. Mm -hmm. This is not that hard. Mm -hmm. And so jumping in, I, long story short, but I cold called. I found a park that was within, within driving distance of Denver because I wanted to be able to get there, which is base camp. Made the deal happen. It was a very long process. That's a whole conversation we can talk oh, about. Oh, we're going to get into it. <laughs> you probably will. Um, really learned so much in my first few months. And just for perspective on this, I bought Basecamp in March of 2023. So I am just now coming up on a year of ownership. Such a big learning curve in the first year because it's such a big machine. And I'm happy to talk numbers and everything that's going on there. Um, but really fell in love with the business. And what I love about it is it's real estate. So you get all of the benefits and the tax benefits of owning real estate, the appreciation, the depreciation, all of that. But it's also a small business. So you also, you know this because you own short-term rentals, you get the cash flow of a business that really is uncapped. And the more effort you put in, the more money you can make. So for that reason, I love it. You know, I'm not capped nothing against my multifamily guys out here. I'm not capped by the amount of units I have because I can continue adding as many revenue streams as I want to because it's a small business. I've got the store, I've got the gas station. I can upsell my lots. I could put Airstreams on there. I could rent out, right? Like I converted some of my cabins into like luxury glamping. So you have that. So there's a lot of options. Um, I ended up buying two other parks last year. So I ended up buying three parks, um, which has led me into this year on taking some time to really figure out systems and people management and just making it all happen. Where are your other two parks? Yeah. So one is a mobile home park here also outside of Denver. It's in Pine, Colorado. And then another one is an RV park in the Ozarks. So cool. So let's go back to base camp. So you decided after learning in your commercial real estate career that you're going to go and pursue a campground. Did you know anyone at the time that was doing this or were you kind of just like, this sounds cool and I'm just going to try it? Like what made you pursue this further? Such a good question in real estate. 
So I joined Heather Blankenship's mastermind, who is on social media, the queen of RV parks. Love Heather. I think it's so important in the beginning, and I'm sure you can, you know, back me up on this talking about short-term rentals, but to get around people who are doing it mm-hmm. normalizes that you can also do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important in big deals because I never even bought a house for myself. I did not own real estate until I bought Basecamp for two and a half million dollars. So to jump in like that and do something that no one in my family owns anything other than a primary home, I didn't know anybody who owned campgrounds. To get in a group of people and a lot of them women who were doing this and who were talking about big deals as if it was like they had gone to Target that day <laughs> was it was it was like perspective changing. And I think half of owning and running a business and investing in real estate is all mindset. Mm-hmm. So if you can get around the right people like yourself that are doing it and you get that mind shift, that mindset shift of like this is very possible. Like I can do this even as I was a paramedic for 10 years. Okay. That mindset shift of like, you think of developers and big real estate owners. Oh, those big, like old white dudes, right? Like that's not me. And when you get around the people are doing it, like that can be me. So that is kind of long story short on how that happened. Um, and now we can like dig into the details. No, I, I love hearing that perspective because it's so true. Like the people that you surround yourself with, they they open up your eyes to like what's possible. And you don't give me trust fund baby vibes. So how did you acquire a $2.5 million commercial asset as your first deal? And then like how freaked out were your friends and family who might not be in real estate for you? I love this question. <laughs> I really do because... Um, yeah, so I was a paramedic for 10 years. For anyone who knows anything about that, paramedics make like 42000 a year. I did not come from money. My dad is a paramedic. My mom stayed home with us kids. So very much come from a very hardworking family that, like I said, most of them own a primary home, but nothing else. Mm-hmm. Love my family. Um, as far as how I made base camp happen, um, I'm going to come at it from two different ways. Okay. So during this very long due diligence and closing process to purchase Basecamp, the bank had come back several times and been like, hey, we love that you're gung-ho, but like we would really like to see a net worth position that covers the entire debt package. So $2.5 million. That was not worth $2.5 million at the time. Um, So I went out and first found one partner. And this is where real estate can get fun because you're only limited by your resourcefulness on being able to find things that maybe you lack. So I went out and found my first partner, who's my CPA partner, who has continued to do all of my deals with me and brought him in. Sorry, your what partner? He's a CPA. CPA partner. CPA, got it. But business partner now. Um, I went out and found him. Phenomenal guy. We got along great. It was looking great. We move on with the deal. We continue in due diligence. Bank comes back again. Hey, We love Ryan. We still love you, but like not quite there yet on like strength that we're looking for. And they had moved from a position of like looking for strength and net worth position to strengthen like managing businesses. Mm -hmm. So Ryan and I are both in our 20s. We were doing a lot of things, right? But we're still in our 20s Mm -hmm. and we didn't have the track record that they were looking for. Now, for perspective, this is early 2023. This is when banks started getting very nervous. Very ab- tight. Mm-hmm, about what we were going into. This is when rates were getting a little more than scary. And this is when they started really kind of 
pedaling backwards after that craze of COVID. And they're starting to be like, "Mm," they're being more careful with their underwriting. They were being more careful with who they were lending money to. So from their perspective on a couple of 20 year olds coming in and being like, oh, and own a campground, you know, this is going to be great. Two and a half million dollars. I mean, the amount of money that the project makes, but also all of the working parts. So that comes down to me bringing in my third partner, (laughs) who's Lisa, who is awesome. She is double my age, but still young, right? (laughs) Um, She brought in double my net worth position and brought in the experience. She had run other businesses before that they were looking for. And I brought in the energy. Now we ended up structuring the deal to where we both brought in 50% of the down payment. And then we operationally split, split it 50, 50. Mm-hmm. So we're 50, 50 running it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a situation of like her bringing in money and net worth and me running it, which you could do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that generation be interested in mm-hmm. the younger ones running it and the older ones kind of backing it. Mm-hmm. We just kind of came in 50, 50. So that is my first caveat to how Basecamp happened. Mm-hmm. The second is we utilized a small business administration loan. I was just going to ask you, SBA. Mm-hmm. So did you do like 10% down and then bake in like any renovation or FF&E? Or I'd love to hear about the loan product. Yes. So SBA is both a love and a hate conversation. We bought this office on SBA. Okay. Which is amazing when it works for the project and yes it is a lot of paperwork and it's i call it the colonoscopy of your life (laughs) they want to see the insides the outside your family members get drug in like you are providing everything to them Mm -hmm. right and you are responsible for the loan so it's recourse and things to be aware of but it is an amazing product when you want to get in with a low down payment. Mm-hmm. So let me break down, break down base camp for you. So, and a lot of people don't know this and I really like sharing this. So typically for SBA deals, it's like that 10 to 15% down payment range. What mo- most people don't know and what most banks won't tell you right off the bat is that you can use a seller carry to cover a lot of that. Come on. Mm-hmm. Such Hello. a good idea. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so um, how we did base camp was... They want a 15% down. So we got the sellers to hold in 10%. Here's why I like this so much. Because you have sellers who've run this business for the past eight years still invested in the business. Mm -hmm. So for new time business owners, that backing of not only having their money, but having them like they are financially invested with you and in the success of this continued project. So not only do banks love that, sellers get to make a little bit extra interest money on some held over money. And then also you have knowing that the seller is there and they are invested in you as an operator and in the business as itself. I love setting it up this way. Also, Lisa and I only had to bring 5% down. Oh, chills. So you guys can run some numbers on that if you want to on what that comes down to. But um, and I'm happy to talk numbers, but yeah. So on the seller carry portion, I know that in conventional lending, even if the seller was willing to say, okay, I'm going to carry your down payment. They, the lender won't let the seller contribute to down payment. So you're saying that from the SBA's perspective, they're cool with the seller saying, I'm going to, did they physically have to bring the funds like to closing or like for the 10% and then you brought the 5% or did they just adjust the price in that way? How did, how did that work logistically? Yeah. And I think really with 
commercial being the Wild West and a lot of gray, you do have a lot of workability with banks and people don't realize that. I had a worse time buying my primary home with the mortgage lending than I have on any of my commercial deals. Oh, man. So, no. So the sellers didn't have to bring the 10% to the table. It came out of the sales price. Yep. Yep. So when they walked with their check that day, 10% was held back and is in the form of a note. As far as working with the banks and the SBA on that, that starts to default more under the SBA parameters and what they want to see, which can actually help you. Because mm-hmm. ours ended up being they just wanted the seller's finance note on the same terms as our SBA loan. Okay. So our SBA loan, and it's a 504, and we can get into that if we want to. All right, let's do it. All right, let's dive right let's in. Let's go for it. All the, all the juice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so a 504 loan, um, the terms on it is it's amortized over 25 years. Um, so they also wanted to see that on the seller finance note. So our seller's note is technically it is tied up for 25 years because they're in third position. We've got bank first, we've got SBA second, and we've got the seller's third. Now, in all reality, am I probably going to refinance before 25 years? Yes. Most of us in commercial real estate are always looking at our next refinance opportunity. Mm -hmm. So that's a conversation you can have with these sellers on like, hey, I know this looks terrifying that this money is tied up for 25 years. But in all reality, here's my plan. Here's my exit strategy, which is really my refinance in that three to five year mark, especially when you bought in 2023 or this Mm -hmm. year where we're buying at these record high rates. Mm -hmm. Like this is a conversation that you can have and it's very real. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be refinancing and likely going to be getting you out of this. Was yours a fixed rate and what interest rate was it at? Yeah. So that is the huge difference between the 7A and the 504 loan products. And I'm not sure what you have on this one. The the different, the adjustable. The adjustable. One. Yep. Yeah. So the 7A. Yep. And because of that, there's pros and cons to both, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll talk about the 504 because that's what we have. So it's non adjustable. Mm-hmm. So you lock it in at the time, which ours got locked in at like 6.4, 6.5. That one runs quite a bit lower than the 7A. Yeah. So it wasn't bad in perspective. Our bank portion of our loan was locked in at like seven and a half. So we were a good point below that on our SBA portion. So mm-hmm. we ended up being happy with that. Um, the 504 is a little bit more strict on like prepayment, mm-hmm. um, and the non-adjustable rate. So like you have a 10 year prepayment penalty, um, that kind of starts high at 10% and it goes down per year. Mm-hmm. But another thing the banks won't necessarily tell you that is very real is you can refinance out of your bank loan and still hold your SBA loan. Mm. So it doesn't all have to be refinanced at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's, Really just finding the right bank partner and an experienced SBA lender who's willing to read through all of those documents with you to see what's possible. So in all reality, if we see rates come, you know, a good point below our 7.5, we're going to be refinancing out of that first position bank loan. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, holding the SBA loan there. So. Cool. Cool. Now let's get into the fun part. So like you acquire the property. Did you do any renovations? Did you keep it as is? How did you start transitioning to the operator? I'm sure that you probably worked in some time for the owner to stay on with you. What did that look like? Yeah, we worked in, we had an initial two-week period where we were working really closely with the sellers. And we bought an off-season here, which was huge because it gave us a six-week run-up before camping season started. Mm -hmm. So we closed in mid-March and we had Memorial Day on the calendar. Like, it's coming. We better get ready. So we had that first two weeks with the owners, um, and really we learned most of our operational skills from our manager. 
So the manager came with the property. We lovingly say we inherited her. (laughs) She's run the property for the past eight years. She is by far our biggest asset. Um, And this is where when you start moving into these bigger projects, these businesses, these commercial properties, they can support a full-time manager. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about it. So we really learned a lot from her, but she's stayed on with us to continue a lot of that. That is vital. I can't even say enough about that. Mm -hmm. So we kept her and the maintenance man and a couple other of local staff that we call our pillars of the business. So it wasn't like coming in and learning everything and and working there, you know, 24-7, seven days a week. Um, And I'm sure you can kind of agree with me on this, that a lot of times working on your business and not in your business ends up being so much better for the business itself because you can see, you know, big picture and long term and you can really focus more in on your strategy than like the day to day of things. Well, I don't think you would have scaled as quickly as you have if you were working inside of that business, if you were the one who is in charge of orchestrating turnovers and maintenance requests, because I'm it feels far more hands on than even short term rental does, at least at least to me, and maybe I'm wrong. Um, How like what is the payment structure for this manager? Is it like a salaried position and how much time do you think that they spend managing this property? And like, what, what does their job entail for a campground? Yeah. Great questions. So she is salaried and we really throughout the year as we learned our management style and how to manage people, which is a whole big thing, Mm -hmm. especially for someone in their twenties. We really ended up sitting down with her and we have a great relationship we fully trust her. She has access to everything. And we really said, you know, we're not here to tell you what hours you're supposed to be working when you're supposed to show up because you really want management to feel like a part of the business Mm -hmm. and you want them to feel that leadership of like, oh, I don't have to show up at 7 a.m. because they told me as long as things are done and it's done well. As far as like performance metrics that we're looking at, so we look for everything to be full. And what, what I mean by that is like full staffing. So she's complete management. Mm-hmm. of hiring, firing, scheduling, document, like all of that is what she does. Full store. So she's doing all orders. She's doing vendor payments. She's managing our, I don't know if you've been inside the store. There's a lot going on there. It's like a little convenience station, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's Convenience. Cool. We've got a liquor, si- a liquor store component Ooh, on the side. I'll have mm-hmm. to check that out next time. <laughs> so she does all of the store, keeping that full. And then the other thing keeping full is the campground. So and we do have a we do have a few long terms in the winter that really help us get through the slow season. And then in the summer, she's in she's in charge of reservations. So their reservation system, she helps us with marketing. So those are kind of our three metrics mm-hmm. that whenever we're talking with her, we're like, hey, how are we looking? Are we full on everything? Mm-hmm. And there's always like dips, ebbs and flows for anyone who owns a small business right, right now. Uh, staffing is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. So. And it's a really rural destination. And so something that I've told our clients who will come into like these more rural mountain towns is sometimes they want to bring like the city energy into the mountains where they're like very much wanting to micromanage. They want like communication super quick. They want everything documented. They want to use Google Calendar. And that is not how people live in the mountains. And like, I do feel like there's a lot that's built on trust and also giving like people like what you're describing autonomy and freedom. And so with my team, especially in the mountain towns, like 
I'm respectful of the fact that like they're probably not going to text me back as quickly as my metropolitan team. Like they are not going to be giving me a spread. Maybe yours does, but like mine are not going to be pulling up a spreadsheet and going through like a cleaning checklist every time and sending me like videos because half the time they don't even have service that's good enough to send me videos. And so just like knowing the demographic that you're working with from a management standpoint, I think is really important. It's so important. And I think you really learn to roll with that and you learn a lot about yourself as a leader and a manager when you start working in these communities because mm-hmm. I think we all go into it that mindset of like it's going to be A, B, C, D mm-hmm. like this is how I run my business and then you get humbled very quickly on that mindset and you learn what hills you die on and what hills you don't yep and you, and you need them so much more <laughs> Like then yes. they need you like yes. and because like there's only so many of them in the area that are willing to go out there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think those relationships are important. Um, let's talk about the numbers. Like where is the revenue coming from? What does that break down to? What do what are your expenses look like? Is this a lucrative venture? Mm-hmm. Love the numbers. So kind of simple overall. Half of our revenue comes from the campground and half of it comes from the store. So back to your point earlier, you kind of mentioned it like, I don't know if this is passive or not for you. It is not at all passive. (laughs) I would never put this business in passive in the same sentence. And I like to be very honest about that. No, this is important. (laughs) Because I think it comes up a lot with short-term rentals too. I think when you're starting out, and not to segue us, mm-hmm. but I think you need to pick what's most important to you and what you're most looking for. I don't know about you guys, but when I started, it was all about cash flow. That's all I could hear. That's all I could see. And that's all I could look at. Because when you're trying to replace an old income and you're trying to be able to support yourself with this new business venture, like I know the appreciation and the depreciation is there. I didn't think about it. Like it wasn't something I, me was like, what is this going to make me monthly? And what is this going to make me annually? So I think when we talk about like passive and active, truly the only way to be a passive investor is if you're the hard money lender mm-hmm. and you're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Some people can probably try to argue me on that. No, I agree. <laughs> I think that there's residual income, not passive income, unless you're a syndicator and your returns are much less than if you're involved. Mm-hmm. And I own one midterm rental. And if I had to put it on a scale of like, more passive and less passive. My midterm rental is amazingly more passive. Mm -hmm. It's not fully passive, right? Because you're still managing that property, but it's way more passive than my RV park campground. There's also a huge money difference, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I maybe cash flow six grand a year on my midterm rental. I cash flow 90 grand a year on my campground. Amazing. So if we really want to talk about active and passive, I think in the beginning, if what you want and what you need is that supercharged cash flow, get ready to work. I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. And I think you learn and I think you scale and you get to the point where you can start bringing in more and more management levels to make it more and more passive. But in the beginning, unless you're coming in with a ton of money and you can hire right off the bat, I don't know how that would work anyway because you'd have no idea what was going on. Yeah. (laughs) But I think if you're willing to work, you can find these properties and you can put in the effort to make amazing cash flow. So if we want to get into the numbers... Yeah, let's go for it. I'm happy to be like totally transparent about it. I'm really excited to dig into that. And okay. I, I do love that you say like get ready to work 
the thing for me in all of this, like in my like journey towards like short term rentals and financial independence, like like you, all I wanted was like cash flow and financial freedom. I didn't want to have to work. But I hear this time and time again, like now I'm at the point where I could live a comfortable life off of my short term rental portfolio. But guess what? I found out that I actually really like to work. Like there's something about doing something, getting compensated for it. Like it's an energizing experience. And most of my clients that are like, oh, I'm just worried about the amount of work. After they start making money doing it, they're excited and they want to bring on more things and be compensated for the work that they're doing. So I think that there's there's something there. Um, okay, so you're making $90,000 in passive income a year. Half of that's coming from the campground. Half of that's coming from the store. Does the campground also include the RV spots? Yeah, so when I use campground, like really reservations. So we're making half of our net profit is coming from our campground and half is from the store. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like from a numbers perspective? Like what does gross revenue look like? What do expenses look like? What are the RV spots booking for versus the small cabins? And what do the store sales kind of shake out to be? Yeah, let's dig into this machine. (laughs) (laughs) If you could just go through a spreadsheet with me. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about revenue streams. I love it. Okay, so this property is so special in so many great ways and lots of hardworking ways. So there's the camping side and then there's the store side. So if I have to talk, let's just talk. I'm going to say I'm going to say numbers. Okay, let's go for it. So the property grosses over 2.1 million per year lot of management. We have really high cost of goods because we're running a convenience store and a gas station. For anyone who doesn't know anything about gas, you make pennies owning a gas station. The whole purpose behind it is to get people on site and get them into your store because you make much more money on your little snacks and goods products. You have a much higher margin on those. mind blowing for me. Yeah. I thought our then, world ran on gas. <laughs> you would think when you pull up and you're paying gas prices, you're like, yeah. man, I need to own a gas station. Like <laughs> these people are just like raking in the yeah. cash. Yeah. It's not the gas station owners that are raking in the cash. I'm sure whoever's like actually producing the oil is looking pretty good. So go talk to that guy. Yeah. But the gas station owners are not in general. So like on your $3.50 gallon, like we are making 25 cents per gallon. So once you add an operational cost and the cost of maintaining the equipment, because there's tons of inspections when it comes to owning a gas station, you really kind of look at it as like, okay, I make some pennies, but I get people in the door and that's why we're there. And when you make the comment of like, yeah, like I'm always running out of gas there. Like we're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So for us to have gas, it gets people to stop. They come in the store, they buy some snacks, they use the bathroom and then they see the campground and they're like, this is pretty cool. Like I think I'd come back up in the summer. So really gas is getting people in the door. So when I say 2.1 million, there's a huge part of that that's going just to the cost of our gas. Like honestly, last year it was nearly 600,000 of that is just going to the cost of the fuel. And then when you have to buy all of the goods for the convenience store too, you're looking at the cost of all of those. So a little different than like running a midterm or short-term rental where you're not buying a good to resell. Mm -hmm. You're leasing a space. So when I say 2.1 million, people think I'm rich. They're like, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I'm not making a million of that, trust me. Yeah. The numbers are still good, but not quite that good. Mm-hmm. So after we pay cost of goods, our true operational expenses run us about 50%. So that's staffing, that's utilities, that's all of the operational things that you pay for to run a business. That's pretty standard for the campground industry. 
um, is right around 50% for the parks who operate short term. So when you have those nightly guests and you have turnover and you have to maintain the park and all of that stuff. If you run it more on a long-term basis, you start talking more along the lines of like mobile home parks. So you can get that expense ratio down. So really we end up with, you know, like I think right around 600,000 of like true net profit. And then you take the 50 off and then we pay our debt service. And then that's how both my partner and I walk with the 90 K each. And then, Oh, cool. So it's 90 K each. Yep. That's awesome. And then my CPA who has a small percentage gets his little bit. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's so. so cool. Is Okay. So is the, if you could like change anything about the property, is there anything that you would add or remove from the property? Like is, is the campground worth it? Is the convenience store worth it? Is one better than the other? Would you take out the gas station altogether? Would you keep everything as is? What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So many yeses to so many of those questions. So I, if I could have it my way, I would triple the size of my RV park and I would get rid of the store and the gas station. Why do I say that? Because you're like, you just told me the half of your revenue is from the store. And it is. Also, the majority of my expenses come from the store. Staffing is our biggest expense. Staffing runs me over 200 grand a year just to staff the place because it is a operational store. It is, you know, seven to nine every day. It is stocking and restocking. And it is very busy. Will I ever buy another gas station or convenience store? No, not in my future. I love the campground model. And especially nowadays, with how remote you can make running a property with check-ins and everything being online and text messages and emails. If I just had the campground, we could get away with having one person on site for a few hours a day to make sure there's no complaints or no issues. The small stuff that comes up when people camp, right? Like, hey, can I fill my propane tank? Like people to help with those things, but not running my cash registers 12 hours a day. So if I could get rid of something, it would be the store and the gas. But until I can double or triple the size of the campground, I can't cut my revenue in half, obviously. So that's kind of where we sit right now. Would you, are you able to expand on your current piece of land or are you kind of tapped out from a build perspective? Yeah, so we are tapped out on the three acres. And that's where that like eight to 10 sites per acre is pretty standard in both RV and mobile homes. Um, so we're at capacity there's no, and we don't own the land around us, although we do periodically check in with those folks to see if we might be able to make something happen. So I'd have to acquire land to expand it. Okay. I'm going to go back all the way to the beginning and I'm not going to make us like go through this again, but I do want to ask you, so you were cold calling mm -hmm. campground owners. What was negotiating this deal like? How did you bridge this conversation? And do you have any tips for someone who might want to find an asset like this? Yeah, and that's a great question. With commercial real estate really being the Wild West in the sense that like, there's no one MLS. You can surf all the different sites and sure there's brokers that do it. But as far as like pricing goes, we start moving into the realm of cap rates. Mm -hmm. And the sellers had come up with Thankfully for me, the seller's wife was actually quite the business lady. So she ran the books very well and she understood a lot of that. So this wasn't like dealing with your mom and your pop that kind of keep their books on napkins and it's almost impossible to verify anything. They had very good bookkeeping and they really pretty much knew what they're doing. So when it came time to negotiate with them, they had like their asking price that they had formulated off of a cap rate. Now that got really sticky when you were looking at it was half RV park and half convenience store because those trade on completely different metrics. 
Um, you have the RV park that trades on a cap rate when we're talking commercial real estate. And then you have the convenience store and gas station that really should trade on more of like an equity multiple, like a small business. But they tried to like blend it into one rate. So it really came down to some judo on like looking through those numbers. I did them myself. I also hired an underwriter, which I really recommend when you're looking at these big deals. And especially when you're new, I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy. So he came in and he relooked over everything for me. We, we chatted, we munched on it. We're like, we finally felt good with what we were looking at. And it really is more of an art than a science, especially when you're looking at these properties where there's so many moving parts like stores, gas, it's a campground. My folks who want to do glamping, like there's so many things you're going to do with it that I think you have to look at, like, how is it going to work for you? And then can you meet in the same ballpark as the sellers? And if you can meet in that same ballpark, you can probably make it happen. You can use creative finance like we did. You can bring in SBA. Like you can make this still happen if you're in the same ballpark as a seller. So that's really where we ended up. I think they were originally asking like 2.75 and then we ended up buying for 2.5. So we ended up doing some negotiating. We did use uh, market interest rates to our benefit, just explaining how that worked, the interest rates that we were buying at. Um, we ended up being able to come up a little in price because they were willing to hold a portion of it as a seller finance. So that helped them. So yeah, these things don't move quickly. And I give my residential friends a hard time because they'll always be like, Oh yeah, I close a deal in, you know, like two weeks, I'm like mm. <laughs> nine months to close base camp. Nine months. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. A huge part of that was because we use the SBA. There's nothing fast about working with the government. So plan for holding on for the long run. Um, and you can do it much quicker if you're just using conventional financing, but we wanted to get creative and use SBA. So it took a lot longer. So out of that nine months, the first, like I started talking to the sellers in July and we went under contract in September because that's how long it took to go back and forth. And thankfully this was off market. So it was just her and I dealing to negotiate, to make it work, to find the bank, to start going through the process to be like, Hey, this makes sense to put under contract now. Like that was July to September. And then September to March, so the six months, was all the due diligence and it was making the financing work. And it was the several times the bank came back to me and wanted me to find something else. And it was that that fun process of making it happen. I had a ton of doubts during that time. I'm very open about that. Like I had no idea what I was doing. You kind of figure it out as you go and you make it happen. And I think that's important for people to hear because sometimes you think that people are just born as commercial real estate investors and they know how to do this. And that is not all how it goes. There was some crying at night there was anxiety <laughs> there was like what am I doing there was this is going to take me down like a Titanic like there was a lot of fear in it because you haven't done it yet and so like anything that's super new and you don't even know that many people doing it is just like oh my gosh what am I doing buying something for two and a half million dollars okay like let's go so that's kind of what that looked like. Yeah, I love that you're so honest about that because I have so many people through just even a smaller transaction and like it's a big deal. And like all of those fears that go through your head of like, am I overpaying for this? Like, can I actually run this? Am I inheriting a job? Like there's so many reasons not to do something. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure that you had a million reasons not to buy this asset like as you're going through the process and now we're on the other side and it's like, wow, what an amazing way to start like a really unique real estate portfolio. And so I love that you found like enough reason to like make it work and you trusted yourself to go for it. So that's super cool. Um, two quick things. So 
One, you mentioned hiring an underwriter. What do you mean by that? Like, do you just Google like commercial underwriter? Like, how do you find this person? Such a good question. Yeah. So no, mine actually came from Heather Blankenship. So I, again, getting around people who are doing it. You ask one question, you find the answer to a hundred questions mm -hmm. because you just start chatting, right? So it came up. I actually use her underwriter that she uses for a lot of her deals. So someone experienced in RV parks, they know what they're looking at. And I had done a lot of underwriting when, as a commercial broker, but I think when you're buying that first deal, especially for multi-millions, you want someone else looking at it. And I think that that is so healthy. Like, I don't think I will ever be at the point that I am not willing to have someone else look at my deal. Why would you not want, you know, a second opinion or another set of eyes looking at these are big numbers and looking at it. So that was worth every penny of what I paid him to go through that and make an amazing Excel sheet and then go over it with me to be like, hey, Sierra, you're not crazy. This looks like a good deal. I think you could do a lot with this. Let's walk through the numbers. So I would say as like far as finding those guys, I think it's network. Mm -hmm. I don't really think they're Googleable, if mm -hmm. that's a word. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but I think if you start talking to people, you're going to find people. Um, so that's I like that. that. Yeah. And then the second question is, so this is an off market deal. Mm -hmm. When you approach the seller, had they thought about selling or do you feel like you had to convince them? Was their timeline in line with what you were looking for? What was that like? Yeah. So I like to say that you'll never talk anyone into selling, but you will catch them on the right day. I happened to catch him on the right day. And he made some, he was a retired sheriff. He made a joke and he was like, well, yeah, everything's for sale for the right price. Right. He's like, why don't you come up and let's meet? That's the other part that's crucial to when you're buying from mom and pops, you have to come at this from a relational standpoint. These are not institutional investors. They're not going to talk corporate. Like you need to break stuff down and you need to be very relational with them. That's how I win a lot of my deals is just by being a friend. And a lot of times you kind of come at it from the perspective of like a granddaughter, like their kids, grandkids don't want anything to do with these assets. But I think when you come in and you're genuinely interested about their life passion project, these properties, and you're like, I want to take this over. Like, let's make this work. And you take care of them. They're going to take care of you. And that's how I've made it through a lot of these deals because so many things come up during due diligence and to have someone on the other side, that's like, we like her, let's continue working. Like let, let's make this happen. I think a huge part of dealing with mom and pop specifically is relationships. So yeah, it was a cold call. It was building a relationship there. We kind of hit it off on certain things. I'd been a paramedic. He was a retired sheriff. So we kind of met along those lines that we were both first responders and they liked me in person. She liked, I was a woman. She's like, I'd love to sell to, you know, a woman entrepreneur. So we made a lot of that happen. Um, yeah. That is so cool. I love that. Yeah, you're right. I, I, you cannot force someone to sell but you can catch them on, a, on the right day. Um, this was so helpful and yeah. so much fun. I loved this conversation. I just think that it's going to be so valuable for people that have dreams of doing something a little unconventional and a little bit bigger. And we'll have to have you on to talk about like some of the other deals that you've purchased since. Um, where can people find you? Yeah. So my name is Sierra Saliendia. It's quite the mouthful. Try calling that out at a restaurant. So <laughs> on Instagram, you can find me Sierra Sal, C-I-A-R-A -A, and then S-A-L. And I try to share a little bit of my journey there. And I do respond to all DMs and all comments. So if there's anything I can help you with, especially if it's commercial, if it's RV park, if it's SBA, I love to talk about it. I love to help other people like realize these dreams. Like I retired myself in one year. 
And I just, I want other people to have that. I really do. So it's like, there's no gatekeeping here. Like however I can help, I'm happy to help. So yeah, come find me. Oh, that's such a gift. Um, and then how can people find Basecamp? Yeah. So Basecamp's also on Instagram, Basecamp at Golden. Um, we, you can go to our website, which is basecampco.com. We're going to have lots of fun events this year. I've got something pretty exciting on the horizon that I can't really release yet. Ooh. But if you follow along with us, then you're going to see a release on that. So please give us a follow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. We are so grateful and we just cannot wait to see how this continues to evolve for you. Maybe it's, a, I guess, like what's next? Like, is there another campground in the horizon? You think you'll do more RV parks? Are you going to continue down this path? Yeah. Um, I'm definitely going to continue acquiring parks. Um, I really love helping people. And I love teaching that because I think it's, it's, there's no training anywhere on it. Like cold calling, like acquiring, like underwriting. What is all of that? So I really love helping people with that. So I like to also this year kind of turn around and give back in that sense. So I will keep acquiring. I'd like to give back. Um, yeah, that's kind of what this year looks like. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we will see you guys in two weeks. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend who's also interested in real estate investing. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a review wherever you listen or watch your podcasts.